right, Genesis 11. Um, as you guys know, um, we started Genesis 1 at New Year's. <laughs> and we're in Genesis 11 now. And what I'm going to do is, um, I'm going to finish chapter 11 tonight. And then we're going to take a break from Genesis. Because after chapter 11, the book breaks. It, it enters into a new direction in chapter 12. So we'll break and we'll, we'll do a summer series on thinking in the book of 1 John. And then we'll go back to Genesis and carry on from there. So that's our plan. And um, let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your grace to us. And God, we ask tonight for more grace to be poured into our lives and our hearts, that there would be an ability given to us from you to pursue Jesus Christ with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And prevent, Father, the tendency within our heart to erect in ourselves a tower of pride in full defiance of your Son. Oh, Father, break down that tower, and I pray that in that place would be a total dependence and clinging to your Son for everything that we need. So we pray for this. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, Genesis 11, verse 1. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said one to another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower, which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. So come, let us go down there and confuse their language, so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, or in the Hebrew, Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. Now, last week we attempted this whole section of scripture, and the awkward short night last week left me hanging in the middle of the message, so we're going to, it's part two in a sense. And some of you might recall that we talked about Jenga, that epic game of building blocks to make a tower. And the point of the game is you've got 16 layers of blocks, 3 by 3 crisscross pattern, all the way at 16 layers high. And the first player is supposed to take a block out of the tower and then place it on top of the tower, thus making it taller, at the same time stripping its foundation away. The next player comes, strips away the foundation, puts another block on top. 
So what you have is a tower getting taller and the foundation getting weaker. A recipe for disaster. I've concluded that nobody really ever wins the game. It's just a matter of who loses first. And, um, of course, I told you that story about the one time that I decided I'd set my own personal record. Because you know how you play, and it's always someone else who makes it fall. And, you know, the tower's getting, like, ethically tall. It's, like, almost to the ceiling. You guys are like, this is crazy. And then it's always someone like Grant <laughs> who has to, you know, take the wrong block. And the whole thing falls. And going, I would have so had it going up to the heavens. <laughs> so I decided I was going to try to see how high I can make it go by myself. It was great. So I take the first block. And everything's going according to plan. I'm like, yes, got the first one. I'm going set. And I hate it when people take, like, the corner of the very bottom layer, so it's immediately all wobbly. You know how that is. They're like, you've already made it hard. No, I go for the easy one and put it on top. Then second round, I'm feeling for the loose ones. And one, this one's totally loose. Like, the tower didn't move. Just the block's just, like, moving with ease. So I'm like, yes. And I pull it out. I kid you not. I pull it out. I set it on top. The second block, mind you. I set it on top. And the whole thing crumbles. And I thought, oh my goodness, I am that guy. <laughs> so I walked away concluding the best way to play Jenga, build the tower and walk away. Hands off. You win. It's never going to fall. Unless, well, it's probably not going to fall. And what I learned from that game was the foundation is foundational is key to the success of the tower's structure and its standability. And Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 3 verse 11 that for the Christian, Jesus is your foundation. He says, for there is no other foundation which has been laid except for Christ Jesus. So the Christian's life is based upon Jesus. And Solomon in Psalm 127, that's 127 verse 1, says that unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. So there's two principles for building a well-structured uh, life. That's to be built upon Jesus and built by God. Jesus said in Matthew 7, at the conclusion of his Sermon on the Mount, everything was said, and then he says to the people, you can take these words of mine and reject them, or you can take them and build your life upon them. If you build your life upon them, you will be like the man who builds his house upon the rock. And the rains will fall, the winds will beat, the floods will rise, and the house will stand firm. But, if you're going to be that man who says, I don't need those words, I'm going to do this my way. You're like the man who builds his house upon the sand. It might look kind of nice, but you'll have to build it twice as the Sunday school song goes. And the rain will fall, the floodwaters will rise, the wind will beat, and that house went splat. And great was its fall. So, Jesus says, the foundation is laid, Paul said, upon Jesus. Jesus said, it's laid upon my words. So, a well-founded life is built upon the foundation of Jesus' words and built by God's work in our life. Jesus' words, God's work. That's how we are well-founded people ready to endure through all hardship and stand firm, perseverance to the end. But, the builders at Babel find out the hard way 
that. You can't build a tower, you can't build a life system while refusing God. He has to build it. Because when God is refused, man is confused. So that's the lesson we're going to learn. So verse 1. Now, the whole earth had one language and the same words. So everyone's speaking one language, but all of a sudden, a new voice comes out. Something that man had never heard before. It's the voice of rebellion from a man named Nimrod. And Nimrod means rebellion. So, right on the scene we have a good idea of what this man named Nimrod is up to. And he, according to the um, uh, Jewish tradition, said, Ignore the counsel of Yahweh and adhere to the voice of Nimrod. So, in chapter 10, verse 8, we find the background to Nimrod. It says that Cush fathered Nimrod. Now, Cush is the son of Ham. Remember, guys, that Noah cursed Ham's descendants, Canaan, because of the sin of Ham. So Ham gave birth to Cush. Cush gave birth to Nimrod, so he already has a bad background. And he was the first on earth to be a mighty man. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. And that could be translated, a mighty hunter against the Lord. Therefore, it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before slash against the Lord. Verse 10, the beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Erech, Akkad, and Kalneh in the land of Shinar. And from there he went into Syria and built Nineveh, and so on and so forth. So the background of Nimrod is this mighty hunter, perhaps against the Lord. And so here he goes, off on a tear. One language across the world, possibly, you know, pure God-given language, and, and mankind worships God, and Nimrod comes on the scene and says, Ahaha! New game plan. Follow me. I'm now your leader. So he gathers a group of people in verse 2, and they migrate from the east and find the plain in the land of Shinar and settle there. Now, it was a fertile place, um, perhaps around the Mesopotamic area, and they looked at it and thought, Hmm. I didn't know there were cell phones in that area. No. They looked at it. Is that your Bible? And that Bible? Oh, that's cool. Okay. Sure. I'll trust you. Um, they, looked, they looked at the plane and said, Hmm. This reminds us of the Garden of Eden. It's so fertile. The, the traditions we heard about it. This has got to be a paradise. So Nimrod gets them together and they start to build a city and a tower. So verse 3, Come, he says, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. And they said, Come, let us, second time, they say let us, build ourselves a city and a tower which top rises the heavens. And third time, let us make a name for ourselves lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. This trifecta of lettuce um, is, is just filled with problems. The first is this desire to build a city. Now, cities in themselves, though they tend to be littered with sin and corruption, are not bad in and of themselves. Yes, they're magnets for sin and for the flesh of man. I, that's, I, you can ask the youth callers who are familiar with Las Vegas. Um, 
There's exhibit A, how cities can attract sin. But the city itself is not sinful. It's the spirit and the mentality behind the city that I believe is sinful. And the, the, the spirit behind the city, the attitude, the motivation is, hmm, life isn't all it's cracked up to be. It needs to be better. More pleasure, more entertainment, more gluttony, everything at our fingertips. So, let us get together and create an artificial paradise so that we can enjoy paradise here and now. Contrary to the other group of people, the remnant in this world who say, we know life's not all that attractive to be, but paradise is coming from God. There is going to be a paradise, and the builder of that city, the New Jerusalem, is God, not man. That's the one we're looking forward to. Hence, Abraham, who comes on the scene in the next chapter, Hebrews says of him that he walked by faith because he was looking for and expecting that city which has foundations. No, it, it has foundations. Nothing in Babel's mention of foundations. And whose builder is not man, but it's God. So two sets of people in the world. Those that wait for paradise in the future from God and those that want it here and now, thus establishing their own system ruled by their pleasures and desires. That's the sin behind a city. It's the spirit behind it, not the structure of it. And here they are, wanting their own thing, adhere to my plan, Nimrod says. So, the second problem of a city is, at least in this context, is a direct violation against God's word in chapter 9, verse 1. Where God, it says there, God blessed Noah and his sons right after they came off the ark and he said to them, be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. Go out there. I want everything populated. Nimrod says, what good is that? If, if, if Mallory lives in China and Jaden lives in Africa and Brandon lives in Alaska... And um, 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 life lives in Europe. What good is that if we're all dispersed and we're all out for ourselves making our own food and our own way of life? Why not just get together and we can all put uh, money easier to make when we're all together? Food's going to be in abundance. Just one common system. Makes sense. But God wanted them to spread across the globe. Why? Is God off to a power trip? He says, I don't want man to be powerful. I don't want man to be successful. You notice that God said that what they're doing is not good in verse 6, and nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. In other words, if they stay together in this one city with one language, with one mindset, they're going to be able to accomplish a lot. And God says that's not good. So does God not want us to prosper? What's the idea here? Go ahead. That's a very, very good interpretation. Sure, I'll take that. Um, what I was going to say is a little more political science, <laughs> but um, there's a certain truth that 
by God dividing man across the face of the earth and giving him different languages, there was a huge amount of grace in that action. You see, what keeps the world um, freer is the fact that there is national competition and political experimentation within each country. So there's rivalries, there's differences that keep people apart so that they can... Now, I'm not saying that God promotes war, but he's, He promotes the idea of nations staying within their own political experiments and cultural differences so that there are smaller forms of many governments. Because if there are not many governments and they all become one government with one... Uh, well, it, it's easier when you're one government to develop one leader. And if you have one leader over one government, one nationality, one political experiment, it's a lot easier to control the world than it would be if you have multi-diversity. Let me put this in simpler terms. If, well, none of you are parents, but um, I'm sure you can think about your parents and relate to this. It's a lot easier for them to control one child than it is for them to control 12 children. Jesse can probably give you some illustrations about that, coming from a big family. Man, when you got 12 children, you got 12 little nimrods wanting to do their own little thing that you've got to somehow collect and make peace in the house. But when you got one child, everything's focused on them, so much easier to control, have peace, safety, and all that stuff. That's the same idea with the nations. If man collects himself together and says, we're going to stay here, one empire, God in His grace said that's not good because what's going to happen is a leader is going to step up and he's going to totally manipulate the entire world and make them the slaves and himself the ruler. Ironically, Babel is going to happen in the future according to Revelation where the worlds are going to come together and there is going to be one leader, an oppressive leader. So, while we are not at that point yet, it's God's grace to give us the best possible life under this fallen world and condition. So that's God's idea there. It's, it's a very gracious action to say, it's not good, split them up. Now, what does the city mean? What does this tower mean? The city is a symbol of rebellion. Because God said, fill your... They're not filling. They're condensing. So the city itself is rebellion. The tower within the city is a symbol of of their pride within their rebellion. You see, the tower protrudes from the dust of man's humble beginnings and elevates itself brick by brick against the Most High. God created man out of the dust of the earth, his humble beginnings, but they're saying, ha, we're above that, and they're setting up their symbol to reach the top to the heavens. Now, archaeologists theorize that this tower was what we call a ziggurat, a ziggurat is a lot like a pyramid, except the sides aren't sloped and flat like a slide. They're tiered with a large um, uh, layer, and then a smaller layer, and then a smaller layer. So it's like these stairs that go up. And on the side of the ziggurat is an actual staircase that goes up to a room up on the top. And there is a table with food on it and a bed neatly made. And there, the gods were supposed to descend from the heavens and dwell in the room when they visited the city. That's why they said the top will be the heavens. Not that it's going to be literally in heaven, but heaven is going to be the top of it. So, it's man's attempt 
to bring God down to their level. And that is the basis of all mythology. You look at Greek mythology, Roman mythology, what do they all paint the gods as? Pretty much glorified human beings, right? They argue, they have sex, they fight, they come down to earth, they look like men, they talk like men, they think like men. Where did all this come from? The idea of bringing God down to man's level. And um, I shared briefly last week that it's very possible that Babel started mythology. They're rebellious against God, notice. They're building this tower for the gods to come visit them. And there's an interesting tradition that traces back to Babel about this mother-child cult. The mother is named Semiramis, and her child is named Tammuz. Now, according to tradition, Semiramis was impregnated by a beam of light, virgin, birth, and Tammuz came out, and he was a mighty hunter, and he was killed one day um, by a boar, and he died, and he went to Hades, and somehow was able to wrestle his way out of Hades, and they would every year celebrate the resurrection of Tammuz by doing, um, coloring eggs and exchanging them with each other, according to tradition, and um, making these little hot cakes and exchanging them with one another. And the way that all mythology plays out is it follows this life and death cycle that they look at the seasons and they see, oh, springtime there's life, wintertime there's death, springtime comes back and it comes back to life, and then it dies and comes back to life. And so every year they would follow this pattern in the seasons and they would get together at the life-giving time and reenact giving life through law, unlawful sexual relationships. And thus, they were manipulating their gods by saying, by the way, when they did this, they are reenacting their myths. They would manipulate the gods, in a sense, and say, by our recreation, we want you to bless our city with recreation. Our flocks to be fruitful, our farms to be fruitful, and our families to be fruitful. So they would physically act that out so that the gods would see and then do what they're doing to their lands, families, and flocks. Very, very... You see how it's bringing God down to man's level and thinking. Now, it's very possible that this thinking spread to all of the mythologies throughout the world, such as Egypt, Greece, Rome, Babylon, and Assyria, and Canaan, because all of their mythologies have the same mother-child cult thing going on in their mythologies. Wouldn't it not make sense that it started at Babel? And when God dispersed the nations, the myths went with them. If you look at all their myths, they're very similar. Just interesting food for thought. But that's the idea here, behind the tower, bringing heaven to become like man. And it's so ironic, because God made man in His image. Man is supposed to be elevated to God, but now here at the Tower of Babel, they're making God in man's image. So, it's a symbol of human pride. Now, it says there in verse 5 that the Lord came down to see the city and the tower. I love this. It's almost as if God humors them. 
You want to think that the gods are going to come down by your little tower? Okay. I'll give it a look. So he comes down. And this is so great. This is so great how God comes down and visits man. Because isn't that what Jesus did? Didn't Jesus come down to visit man, God amongst man, for the sole purpose, not of bringing God into man's image, but of bringing man to God's image. That's why Jesus came down. He came down to redeem us so that we can, Romans 8, is it 29 or 28? Romans 8, 28, 29, so that we can be conformed to the image of His Son. Jesus came down to us so that we could be restored to God's image, not to bring God to our image. So God comes down almost foreshadowing Jesus, which, by the way, the ziggurat had the stairs. Remember, the top is the heavens, the bottom is earth. Remember when Joseph, Jacob, Jacob fled Esau, and he fell asleep in Bethel, and he had a dream as his head was on the rock, which is why he dreamt weird dreams, I'm sure. But as he's laying there, um, he had the dream of what? A ladder from earth to heaven, and the angels ascending and descending on it, right? Ladder, staircase. What's going on at Babel? Flash forward 2,000 or so years to Jesus, and he talks to Nathaniel, and Nathaniel's blown away that Jesus knew he was sitting under the fig tree and all that stuff. You might remember John chapter 1 or 2. And Jesus says to Nathaniel, Nathaniel, you're blown away at that? <laughs> you're going to see the angels ascending and descending upon the Son of Man, me. Jesus made a direct link to Joseph's, Jacob's, dream. I am that bridge, that staircase that brings earth to heaven. I'm the one that brings man to God. I love this, how God comes down and visits the people. So, he does so. And then, he talks about confusing their language. So, it says, the Lord dispersed them from over the face of the earth. Verse 8. And therefore, oh, this is where the climax comes in verse 9. Um, now, when we think of climax, a climax of a story, we think like, we're going to find out who did the murder, the mystery is going to be solved, or we're thinking a huge explosion is going to come, or we're thinking Armageddon. Um, they're going to save the earth, like epic type of climaxes is the way we think, right? Well... The way that Moses incorporates the climax here, it's very subtle. It's a very creative play on words, okay? So watch this. This is his whole, he's building up to this verse in verse 9. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because the Lord confused, note that word, the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. So, the tower in the city was called the bell because the Lord confused them. That's the climax. Let me, let me show you more of what Moses has in mind, okay? He implies here that the city was called the bell because they were confused. Meaning that the bell is supposed to mean confusion. But that's not the case. The bell means the gate of the gods. El, God, Bub, gate. So the gate of the gods. But the Hebrew word Balal, similar to Balal, Balal means confusion. So what Moses is doing 
is he is taking a play on words. He's taking Babel, which sounds like Bilal, confusion, and he is using that to say, it is confusion. Babel is confusion. Not Bilal, Babel. Why is he saying the gate of the gods is confusion? Because that's exactly what he wants us to understand. When we go to Babel, to the gate of not God, but the gate of the gods, and do our own thing, our human pride, our own rebellious city, we are in a state of confusion. Babel, the gate of God, is confusion. Moses wants to hit the nail on the head and say, don't be, Israel, don't be, when you get to your promised land, don't be like the builders of Babel. Don't refuse God. Because when you refuse God and go after the gates of the gods, you will be confused. If you refuse God, you will be confused. And you're not going to understand anymore how to run your country. You're not going to understand anymore how to raise your children. You're not going to understand anymore how to keep your family finances in order. And when you read the history of Israel, you get to Judges, and it is a confusing state that country's in. Why? Because Israel refused God. And we see the result is that they were a confused people. And their whole story is chaos in that book. Oh, I hate the book of Judges. I, it's like you want to take a shower after you read that book. It's just, oh, so gross and depressing. But that's the point. Don't refuse God in your life. Don't say, well, yes, I know you want me to be like that or to do that, God, but I want to make my tower. I want my city. I'm going to erect my pride and rebellion. Because careful, when you make that tower, you have to forsake your foundation. Jesus, when you make that tower of your rebellion, your pride, and say, my way, you have to forsake Jesus, your foundation. Just like when you build a tower in Jenga. You have to rip from the foundation to make that thing taller. And every time that we refuse God's way, God's word, God's plan, we're ripping from our foundation to erect our pride and rebellion all the higher. But the higher we build it, the weaker our foundation. And the more we forsake Jesus, and the more we forsake Jesus, our foundation, the sooner that we're prone to fall. And like Proverbs 16 something, I think it's 18 says, Pride comes before a fall. And if we continue to build that tower of pride and rebellion and refusion of refusion, refusal of God, eventually our tower is going to fall. Great will be our fall. Great will be the crash. And we're going to be left in pieces, confused and not even sure what life is for, what to do with ourselves. So, if God has been leading you in a certain direction and you've been saying mm, the Nimrod in me wants to go this way stop that because you're ripping and it's slow but sure you're ripping one block out and you're putting it on top eventually not immediately but eventually you're going to crash you're going to fall 
great is going to be that fall. I don't want to do what Jesus is telling me to do. I want to do what I want to do. You know what's ironic? Is the builders of this tower, it says that they made it of of, um, brick. You know what a brick is? It's hardened clay. You take clay out of the ground, you shape it, and you bake it. It gets hard, it's brick. It chips easy, it's not everlasting, it's not permanent. But that's exactly what we are when we rebel and refuse what God wants us to do, when we're proud. Isaiah 64, verse 8 says this, But now, O Lord, you are our Father, we are the clay. You are the potter, and we are the work of your hand. God, you are the potter, we're the clay, you're going to form us, we're the work of your hand, have your way. That's the way clay should be, soft and moldable in the Father, the potter's hands. But when we do our thing and rebel and refuse God, we're taking that clay in our hands and we're being baked by the sun and being hardened so that we're left nothing but a brick, or brickheads, blockheads. Chip easy, not permanent. Furthermore, where's the mention of a foundation with these bricks? Moses strategically never mentions a foundation in the building of the city because there is no other foundation except that which has been laid, Jesus Christ. And the only way we build on that foundation, Jesus said, is by obeying my words. The man who does what I say is like the man who builds his house upon the rock. It has foundation. It's going to stand. It's not going to fall. So, that's what we need to be. Founded upon God's word, not rebelling. Because when we rebel, we're, we're pulling from that foundation to make our tower higher. and We're going to fall. We'll stop playing the game of Jenga. No one wins at it. Just, God made us, let's walk away. We don't have to elevate ourselves in pride. We just need to be well-founded. And when the storms come and blow away every other building that has no foundation, your moment of pride of glory is going to come when you're the last one standing and God looks at you and says, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the now eternal everlasting paradise, not your man-made temporary one. Enter into my paradise for you. So, let's not refuse God lest we become a confused group of Nimrods. (laughs) So, Father, that's our prayer, is that we would stop ripping from our foundation just to build our tower higher, just to um, glorify ourselves. Lord, there are some stubborn, stubborn towers in our hearts. I pray that you graciously come now. Walk down the steps of those towers, take a look at our city, and point to us what needs to come down. God, we give you the sledgehammer. We give you permission for demolition that you would have your way. That we would be refounded upon your words and built by your work, not ours. So Father, take the bricks out of our hands and may we be moldable and may we look and act and live exactly as you the architect 
want us to look, live, and act. So bring down those towers and pray in your son's name. Amen.